Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Hello, and welcome once again to the July edition of the State of Distressed Debt. Uh, part of the Focus podcast series where we focus on the U.S. stress, distressed, and bankruptcy markets. I am your host for this month, Noel Hebert. It's been a pretty wild several weeks for high-yield markets, so joining me once again to explore it all are Eliza Ronalds-Hannon of Bloomberg News, as well as Nagisa Baluku and Phil Brindell of Bloomberg Intelligence. And uh, since you've all been extra good and as an extra special treat, we're pleased to also bring in Eliza's conversation with Bruce Richards, Chairman and CEO of Marathon Asset Management, as he offers his view on, well, the state of distress. But first, Phil, I mean, listen, high yield is basically 200 basis points wider uh, or so since the end of April, and triple C is more than 300 basis points, and pressing up towards 1,100 basis points easily sort of above where you would think they'd get just on sort of your interest cycle blow off. Um, Primary market still very quiet. Liquidity is not looking so great, and prices are looking really gappy uh, as people start thinking more about the R ward versus inflation. So I know this is definitely trickling, or perhaps more appropriately, flooding into your market. So I guess maybe two questions to kick off here. First, you know, where are we? And uh, I guess second, more and maybe more importantly, you know, how bad do we think this gets? Thanks, Noel. Yeah, no, it's we are definitely in the midst of a distressed debt surge. Uh, you know, we're at a distress ratio of 10.7 percent. To put that in perspective, at the end of March, we were at 2.1 percent. Uh, and, you know, in terms of actual just sheer volume of distressed uh, bonds, um, you know, this is on the high yield ICE index. Uh, it's $154 billion of distressed versus just $30 billion at the end of March. Um, we've never seen such a bad start in the, to the year in the distressed index. We've had six straight months of negative returns. Now, we've seen six straight num- months of negative returns before, but they've always started in the nasty part of the calendar, which is between May and July. Well, guess what? We're at May and July, and we've already just had six bad months. So I have a lot of confidence that we're just going to continue to see miserable um uh, miserable high yield performance. And that means more distressed debt and worse returns for high yield. Now, all that being said, for those who are hoping for a dead cap bounce, we've never seen seven straight months. <laughs> so so maybe <laughs> no, maybe that's a glimmer of hope. Silver lining of a sort. So, so I can say, you know, before we, we maybe pivot here, like when do you start to go, okay, well, yields here, uh, just from the carry that you're making on that sort of part of the index, start to get to a point where if you got a long enough horizon, you go, okay, maybe I dip my toe in. Like, yeah, like a, traditionally, I've looked at triple C and go, okay, north of 10%, maybe you still lose some over the next six or 12 months. But if you got like sort of more of an intermediate term horizon, you tend to do pretty well. Is there something similar for your space? Yeah, great question. And I've looked at that. And, you know, one of the things that I've seen with distressed is the distress ratio in all the spikes and all the peaks, it's gotten to at least 24%. It was as high as 86% in the in the Great Recession. Um, and so I'm looking for the, the, the that 10.7% ratio to jump to 25% before I get any confidence that we're really kind of out of the risk. Of. And then I also took a look at all the periods of the four previous cycles where you know, we got our sell signal in May where you really should be getting at a high yield because we're starting to see it really come apart. Um, and in from that period in May, we've seen, you know, like in four previous cycles, we've seen them last 16, 17, 17, and four months. So the shortest span was just four months till you hit your distress peak. Um, but generally, it's, it's taken 16 months for it to really get to that... Uh, climactic end. Um, but to your point also, it's it's 8.9% yield to worse. That's starting to, you know, that, that that's starting to look attractive. It certainly sounds attractive. 
Um, and we've seen previous you, peaks. You're talking high yield. Yeah, high yield. And, and yeah. we've seen previous. It's distressed and right. at least a thousand basis right. points. Yield yeah. 8 but, no, yeah. uh, that's that's for the high yield index. Um, and we've seen previous peak in the high yield indexes were between between ten and twelve percent. You know, except for the Great Recession where it jumped over twenty percent. But, yeah, um, and I think it's hard to sort of anticipate that. I guess one one other question there, I mean, because I, I think you mentioned the lag and sort of the duration of some of these distress cycles. One of the things that sort of strikes me is, you know, with the exception of a few names we'll, which we'll get into a little bit later, I mean, it's still been a relatively quiet default cycle. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily look like, at least in the very immediate term, that there's anybody sort of sitting on the bench with the exception of uh, maybe a couple of names how do you think about sort of maybe defaults playing out or, or do you think that just sort of lags with you know distress as a broader term i think we've gone into this uh, potential recession with massive court cash hoards I, I look at something like american where they had record liquidity of 20 billion dollars that gives them a lot of time to burn through a lot of cash so always a very encouraging sign for creditors. Yeah. And I and I don't mean to pick on American because, you know, honestly, at least they have skyrocketing ticket prices to, you know, help them out there. But I do think that the big cash hoards that everyone had, everyone was in a defensive posture. And so I think that will help. It'll it'll help. It'll help prolong this default cycle. I don't know if that's a good thing, bad thing. Um, but, you know, I, I do anticipate that it'll be more spread out. Yeah, well, I mean, and I think that's more consistent with what we had up until the, you know, certainly uh, up until the financial crisis was sort of these more elongated cycles. And, and I guess that, that'll be interesting to think. I guess that maybe puts us into an interesting point where it makes sense to sort of transition here. Uh, and bring in Eliza and Eliza, your conversation from earlier today uh, with Bruce. Thank you, Noel. And thank you, Bruce, so much for being with us today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Eliza. And, and great to be on your show. It's a, an interesting time. A lot is finally going on for our type of people. So um, I would love to start by just talking about macro themes a little bit. Distress is obviously ramping up. We have the Fed raising rates quite quickly and the market is certainly reacting. I would love to know what you think about whether and how soon this really will result in a particularly sharp or prolonged distress cycle. The answer is yes and yes. So Marathon's laser focused on what we think is this impending credit cycle that will be driven by downgrades and defaults. Marathon's underwriting our base case recession scenario to mid-2023, and every corporate underwriting um, is base case recession. So, look, I think that corporate profit margins are going to be noticeably weaker in the coming quarters. Um, companies are getting squeezed on all sides. COGS, cost of goods sold, uh, wages, uh, everything's driving up these operational costs. And at the same time, we're seeing top-line revenue for a lot of these companies, especially in the economic sensitive sectors, um, at times when financial conditions are tightening, um, we see that being probably 8, 10, 12% contraction looking out one year, at a time when the Fed's hiking rates and interest expense ratios are going up. So when you add it up, Eliza, it's the higher input costs, labor, material, transportation, all these costs at a time when the supply chain is broken, when we have deglobalization, which requires more inventory, more capex. And, you know, for some of these global country companies, you have a high, a stronger U.S. dollar, which will impact global sales. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is the Fed won't admit this openly, probably. But most likely knows that their actions at this juncture will likely require inducing a recession in order to tackle inflation. It's too politically charged, too politically sensitive to say that. But the tightening of financial conditions um, that they're going to have to go to to break inflation will be very negative for equities as we move into, I think, you know, what I mentioned before, this earnings recession. Um, at the same time when credit spreads can be pushing water. So the first half of 22, worst 
you know, uh, treasuries and equities, worse than 60 years. So it's pretty clear to us at Marathon, given our data, given our analysis, given our vantage point, that there's a pretty big distress cycle coming. It's just around the corner. And this time will be different, most certainly, because the Fed is tightening going into recession, as opposed to the prior cycles where the Fed was easing as the recession began. So that's a great you know, point. Regarding... Talk about leverage finance, and, and, and yeah. but um, you know, I think that's a really key consideration is what the Fed's going to be doing, um, you know, in this coming year. Yeah, and what you say about the previous cycles is so important because. Um... You know, often investors are making some of their decisions based on the most recent comparable environment. But I'm was curious to ask you how you see this cycle differing from heading into previous recessions, maybe not 08, 09, but um, some of the earlier ones. And do you see similarities or differences uh, aside from this tightening, you know, backdrop or more importantly, how do you think that tightening backdrop will affect the rate of the cycle? Really, really good question. And, and you know, I think back to the TV show, uh, Ashton Kushner called the, uh, the 70 show. And it's going to be the 70 show because that's the last time you saw inflation raging, um, you know, with, um, uh, with economic recession. Um, so, look, during, you mentioned 08 or 09, during the DFC, the banking system was in precarious position, you know, at best. Lehman failed. Uh, banks settled with you know you know hundreds of billions of bad loans uh, on the heels of the subprime crisis. So as a result, the Fed took these extraordinary extraordinary measures and used every tool in the toolbox um, to uh, ease financial conditions. And today, the banks are incredibly strong. Financial system is strong, and the Fed is moving in the opposite direction by uh, embarking upon quantitative tightening and embarking upon a tightening cycle as opposed to what happened, you know, in, in the previous 08, 09 cycle. You know, in 2020 during COVID um, and the outbreak of, outbreak of COVID, the Fed immediately did extraordinary measures, uh, reversing and creating this V-shape. We're not going to see this, this occurrence happen or what happened in 01, 02 when the Fed is going into recession because as what I mentioned before, the simple fact is the Fed is tightening into recession. So going back to the 70s show, um, I'd simply highlight that that bear market that you know lasted from 1980 to 19, I believe, 82, lasted 622 days. I think that was the number. And so the biggest similarity um, that we have to prior recessions that were more recent is just that the consumer is beginning to roll over. We see weakness at every level of the consumer as inflation is burning a hole in savings, you know, elevated fuel costs, housing costs, food costs, everything costs, uh, weakening consumer sentiment. So, you know, coming back to that prior question, um, Marathon's, you know, leverage finance team, our analysts, our portfolio managers are, are really preparing for this, you know, elevated default rate, um, elevated, uh, you know, downgrade, that's going to be coming and we think default rates with that rise from about half of 1% more than tenfold uh, mm -hmm. to about 6% plus and we think the cumulative default rate which isn't just measured in a year but over time uh, aggregates around 10%. Many non-investment grade issuers today have borrowed excessively in these last few years at record low rates and today they're saddled with and left with high leverage ratios at a time when profit warnings are coming, at a time when the interest expense is going to be soaring. And so in a nutshell, the credit markets today are bigger than they've ever been by a huge order of magnitude with over $5 trillion in debt between U.S. Europe high-yield companies, uh, both alone and high-yield bonds. And we think that will result in a record amount of distress, which is we put a number on it, around $510 billion opportunity set. Wow. Now, how do you see the down cycle playing out across different asset classes? Um, do you guys have 
projections that are specific to say private credit versus leveraged loans or corporate bonds and does potentially the relative size or liquidity of each asset class affect how you strategize around it during this cycle yeah bonds and loans it's a really good point are very very different so let, let me start with this line the false downgrades are going to be rising and most industry sectors across I'd say everything besides resources and energy, um, you're going to see higher default rates, whether it's loans or bonds. In fact, all manufacturing sectors we think are especially at risk given, you know, cost of goods and, and their imports and, 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 and supply chain. And, and so what you'll see is not only the manufacturing side, but the service sector, especially, um, you know, um, consumer discretionary sectors, uh, flashing yellow already on a way to flashing red. So as credit markets fall and they're falling, you know, today and last week and all year, and they continue to fall this year, um, there's going to be an amazing opportunity to select the winners from the losers by buying dislocated credit at hugely steep discounts. And so some of these high yield bonds are off 20, 25 points. They're good credit quality. And we're going to be scooping those up and we're also going to be able, on the flip side of that, be able to buy distressed debt, what we call the fulcrum security, at significantly deeper discounts as restructuring processes work through. So let's talk about your question of high-yield bonds versus loans. Uh, bonds used to take the brunt of the losses relative to loans in prior cycles, and this time around, we think high-yield bonds have a stronger credit profile because of the simple fact that they have lower coupons that are fixed, but also, a lot of the excess has been going to the high-yield bond market. And today, the high-yield bond market has over 50% of the market, the highest in the last 20 years, rated double B or better, or double B minus double B, double B plus. Um, so high-yield bonds, I think, um, have will probably have a fair amount of defaults coming their way. Uh, however, more pain is going to come from the loan market. Specifically, what about private credit? Well, that's a big thing. So it's broadly syndicated loans and it's private credit. And, and you know, you look at these leverage ratios and, um, and the cohorts that are now generating negative free cash flow, uh, especially these growth companies that tapped into the leverage loan market. So you saw the, to your point, you saw the, the uh, private credit floating rate, you know, asset market itself grow from less than 100 billion in 2008 to over 1.1 trillion here in the United States alone today. That's an 11 fold increase in what it, we characterize as one credit cycle. And so today, the market is left with this complex of lower credit quality, weaker documentation, higher interest expense. Here, here's a fact for you, Eliza, and for the listeners here today. By the end of this year, with what the forward rate curve is for Fed funds, that is 100 base points higher than it is today, and we're just using that in our model for this discussion, that we'll have 53% of the currently B-free rated loans that will have an interest coverage ratio less than one time. Wow which is really alarming, which means they can't cover their interest without earning cash and how much cash do they have before they fall to triple C because the rating agencies are all over these ratios. So implied default rates for loans this time around, I know it's hard to believe, but for loans this time around will actually be higher than bonds. And by the end of this year, the coupon on leverage loans will be higher than the coupon on the fixed rate high yield bond market. Wow. So you'll see and default rates higher for loans than bonds, which is remarkable. That is. And you're saying the default rates for loans will partly be higher just because of the factoring in of the private credit market and the nature of some of that debt. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of extend and pretend associated with that. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there's um, you know, there's out-of-court restructurings that we like to refer to and the in-court restructuring. So there's going to be a kick in the can down the road 
like you always find in every credit cycle, but particularly you'll see that in the private credit loan market. Yes, I mean, largely because the lenders can't always really afford to recognize the scope of the problems. They don't want to have to write those losses down, right? Eliza, Eliza you said it. <laughs> okay, I well, said it any better. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about something very timely, um, not necessarily a passing fad, but there has been a lot of cryptomania kind of sweeping the distressed uh, asset class right now. Um, we had Three Arrows file bankruptcy, we had Voyager. Um, what do you, are you and other investors, I mean, it's not exactly brand new, but have you and other investors been really um, putting your heads down and trying to do a lot of research regarding how you strategize investing in some of these guys as they, as they go out or, or take a knee. Um, and it, are there any kind of hidden quirks there? And is it even apparent, you know, whether customer deposits will be somehow ranked higher than lenders? What do you kind of think about the approach for buy sider? All, all the right, all the right questions, and and, and um, we've been spending a lot of time in the sector, evaluating it, and avoiding it like the plague. <laughs> so let, let me let me share with you our perspective, and and our thoughts here on on crypto. On uh, you mentioned Voyager, but there's you know several others, others you know including there three years that you mentioned BlackFi, Celsius one, and but so let's start with you know marathon. And who we are, we're fundamental credit investors, and we underwrite to what we consider to be attractive risk reward across sectors. And we want sustainable business models, and we want um, you know entities that can generate free cash flow. And so, the lack of regulatory cap, uh, clarity and what we consider to be sustainable value um, that can be captured in this nascent market um, doesn't really fit the premise of attractive risk reward for us. So as investors, we, we, we study it, as I mentioned, and, and we principally maintain an open mind to how blockchain technologies will influence the financial sector and non-financial assets um, in the years to come. And so um, it's with that in mind that we're, we're doing our work. But what we've seen, and I think this is more relevant to the question you're asking, is while we've avoided it, we've seen other credit managers jump into crypto space in search of yield farming and, and AUM growth. And, and this has clearly been, we think, misdirected in terms of the calculation they've made, given strategy for staking crypto assets to earn midterm team yields, um, while taking, we think in the process, significant risk in these loans. And, and, and ultimately, uh, there's been significant impairment um, because at the end of the day, it's a directional bet, um, although it's, you know, that you're taking against some folks that have what we consider to be asymmetric information. Mm -hmm. um, and so these, these risk-free arbitrages are the furthest thing from risk-free. And, you know, crypto is many things to many people. Bitcoin's fixed supply. You know, you have this permissionless, you know, monetary system. You have, um, you have Ethereum, which is this base layer smart contract platform. And you have many different open source infrastructure projects with hundreds of applications and use cases, and and of course you have the you know the key centralized service providers. The mania that we've seen from you know Luna Celsius, you know you mentioned you know Three Hours Capital, BlockFi, uh, Voyager came from we think a lack of discipline with respect to what first principles and underwriting are which is your true collateral value, your mm -hmm. counterparty risk, the leverage, uh, cash flow generation, um, and your ability to truly have collateral. You know, Marathon's focused on, and we think that one of the best strategies one can do in this universe, asset-based lending. And so here we're lending as, in a senior secured way, collateralized by hard assets mm -hmm. at a conservative attachment points against you know, residential property or office pro or, 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 or commercial real estate or quite the opposite of crypto as, as opposed, as opposed to crypto. Yeah. That's, and so, so we don't look at asset based lending at all with that as a, 
Um, and, and by the way, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned lending practices in the banks and, and who's got what collateral rates. Um, simply put, um, crypto is, is evolving. It's in its infancy state. It's not properly regulated at this point. Um, and, and, you know, um, and it's not up to bank standards. Um, and so if it's not up to bank lending standards, it won't be up to Marathon's lending standards because Marathon always sizes up the opportunity um, to identify what we consider to be you know, these favorably skewed risk reward opportunities. So you're staying away. Avoiding staying like away. the plague. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> but, but studying it because there's going to be lots of applications yes. for companies that will be affected um, you know, um, in a okay. positive way through uh, better technology. Got it. Well, another kind of theme that Phil and I were discussing earlier about what companies who have filed for bankruptcy or otherwise indicated restructuring needs um, recently, and that has seemed to be that several of them, you know, devolved um, or had their liquidity crunch happen quite fast. And, you know, it's uh, and it seemed to have not been able to predict their liquidity needs correctly. Revlon comes to mind as a company that has so much cash flow usually, but um, ran into a corner simply based on some of the supply chain is issues. Um, Talon also filed quickly, even in a in an environment where they should have been having plenty of revenue because of the prices of power. Um, what do you make of this inability, seeming inability to really predict liquidity needs the way that companies have seemed to be able to in the recent past? Well, let's talk about Revlon for a second, talk about Talon for a second, and, and then answer that broader question. Good with you? Yes. Okay, great. So Revlon. Well, Marathon's avoided Revlon for years. Mm -hmm. uh, Revlon's too highly leveraged. They've been losing market share. It's, their operations have been poorly run. Um, and we've identified those risks for years. And so we've avoided it. And, and, you know, you take their, for instance, you know, one segment, their color cosmetic line, uh, which is a key line for them. And they, so they've seen in the last, I don't know, five, six years, uh, their market share declined from over 7% to less than 4%. And at the same time, we see supply chain problems uh, for Revlon. And they really haven't evolved their distribution channels, um, you know, being with influencers or online to the extent that other, um, you know, cosmetic companies have. So what we think is valuable for Revlon is their IP and their business itself. It's just a company needs in-court restructuring and a process to be run to right-size its high debt load given its smaller business line that it's lost uh, in terms of market share and, and where it is today. And as it relates to Talon, it's a very different situation. And we're not involved in Revlon, as, as I just mentioned. Talon, um, you know, just for full disclosure for everybody, um, you know, we have a business in Talon. So, so Talon's a, a Riverstone, you know, roll-up. It's an acquisition that relied on high degrees of leverage and dividend recaps in prior years. But unfortunately for shareholders, Talon uh, was very aggressive in hedging some of its um, energy risk, and it did it at an inopportune time, and it proved to be highly costly, where they couldn't make margin calls and they had this big liquidity shortfall. And despite this huge run-up in electricity prices, and you know, and, and the big power plant in Pennsylvania that's highly efficient, productive, and a valuable asset, um, they just have too much debt and lost too much money on their hedges. And so the process is now underway. At the end of the day, Talon creditors uh, will most likely walk away with the ownership of this company. And, and again, um, Marathon you know, purchased a considerable position in the debt of Talon just a few months ago to capitalize off of this exact restructuring that is coming to the forefront right now. Um, so you're, the bigger question is like, you know, the playbook, right? And how do you, how do you think about this? Um, you know, yeah. um, so I, I can't share with you everything because <laughs> this is, you know, it's proprietary and, I, you know, I'm not going to show our hand before uh, we, you know, kind of built it, um, our, our book and we're prepared to speak about it. And 
we have a lot going on right now, um, but we're lining up all our ducks for the big events that are going to be coming later this year. So having said that, um, um, you know, our, our, you know, our investment bankers here at Marathon are, are, are working with these financial sponsors, working for, with creative solutions on what we consider to be a whole complex of opportunities uh, that are going to be turnarounds and rescue financing. And we're having some of these early conversations now. Um, but, and our bankruptcy lawyers at the same time, I think today, are really gearing up the marathon um, awards, gearing up for what we consider to be you know, this big distressed opportunity um, that's you know that's on the horizon. So it's everything from us providing you know debt financing, uh, us you know providing debt for equity swap, swaps, um, us you know taking um, positions in deeply discounted debt and, and be willing to work for a process um, because we own it at a level. Um, where if it becomes the fulcrum, um, the um, equity valuation there is such a huge discount given the, given the ongoing business of the company that we think it's a you know a really really attractive return for investors. That's and a good so it's play. Less about yeah. The yeah, it's less about the maturity wall right now. Uh, that's not so haunting. It, it, but there are a bunch of hugging financings out there in the banks um, as the as these underwriters kind of misread you know the window mm -hmm. of opportunity to place it. So at the same time, our public market team um, is, you know, hunting for what we call consider to be these, these high quality, strong, fundamental, you know, underwritten businesses um, where when there's big dislocation, uh, we can, you know, we can step in and buy at this price uh, risk. So we're pretty, we're pretty, pretty geared up for this and, and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and focused on what this opportunity is. Yeah. Yeah, and you have the cash um, to to deploy. I guess. I mean, that's been the good thing about having not too much to spend it on for a little bit. Um, in the yeah, in the there's, more there's there's billions of that capital available here at Marathon to <laughs> pounce when the opportunity is right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, I love to end by kind of asking people what um, they're most excited about and, and most nervous or what keeps them up at night. It sounds like your excitement is clear and apparent at the um, huge amount of opportunities you're pre predicting and preparing for. Uh, is there anything that quote unquote keeps you up at night? Anything that either macro or more um, specific to particular distressed asset classes or investments? Well, you know, the, Stay away from politics and um, some of what's going on is, is, is you know, not, um, uh, you know, not what I, you know, it's very difficult for, I think, a lot of Americans. And what's going on internationally, uh, geopolitical, mm -hmm. also very complicated, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, and, and, you know, a, a real, a real shame. So, um, you know, we wish for, um, you know, uh, a little more peace. stability. Peace and stability, and 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 our prayers are with the citizens of Ukraine, and 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 you know, and a resolution to Putin's aggression. And, but there's so many topics that are um, in front of mind for us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, here in the United States, um, you know, inflation's ravishing, ravishing uh, savings of uh, consumers, and so there's more, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, you know, um, more. I think. Super stressed. It's going to be coming uh, to the forefront year yeah. to come, and I think there's, um, you know, food insecurity around the world that um, comes as a result of limited food supply or more limited food supply and much higher prices. So all that and much yeah. more as relates to the Fed markets, you know, is, is is disconcerting and concerning, you know, to me personally and yeah. to marathon. Investment professionals. You know, in terms of opportunities, so, mm -hmm. I'd say two, um, you know, three things. Number one is we love asset-based lending. Lending at attachment points, you know, LTVs um, that we consider the conservative levels where the collateral package is protected by inflation, whether it's, whether it's plant, equipment, inventory, aircraft, real estate, that's our collateral. And that asset-based lending program at Marathon um, is, is, is doing phenomenally well, and we're sourcing across all spectrums 
um, and and running a really tight business there. So that I love. Yeah. That that I think is a top it's all about the assets. For, it's for a the lot cycle. easier. Yes. Okay. The, Got the, it. The, the flip side. The flip side of that is is distressed debt will offer the best outsized return potential. We think in the, in the coming twenty four months, um, and we're we're gearing up uh, for that. And our investors that invested in our distressed funds have been very well rewarded. And they stepped in in 2020 in a big way um, with some decisiveness uh, to commit. And, um, and, and they're going to get a second, a very big second bite at that apple um, in the coming year. So those Great. are the two things that I think excite me most. Best outsized return potential. How's that for something to be excited about? <laughs> something to be a little optimistic about. Thank you so much, Bruce. Exactly. Thanks for being with us today and sharing some of your views. And we hope to check in as the cycle continues. Eliza, thank you, and uh, all the best uh, to you and everyone out there listening. Um, happy hunting. Good luck to, to all. Thanks, Bruce. Bye. Bye. So really interesting conversation there. Hopefully uh, all of our listeners enjoyed that. I guess, Eliza, before we turn it over to, to maybe talking through some of the ongoing bankruptcies that we've <laughs> thankfully finally have uh, in the marketplace, what do you think was sort of one of the more interesting takeaways uh, from that conversation? Well, I thought it was valuable to get his perspective on how this cycle compares to others. And, you know, it may seem a bit obvious that um, it's it's pretty noteworthy that we're actually heading into this cycle with the Fed tightening as opposed to usually being able to see the pain coming and having the Fed give us a little bit of a um, softer landing, really. And the fact that this is going to be pretty unique in that regard really is cause for concern in terms of how hard it's going to hit the economy and especially consumer facing sector. Yeah. I mean, I think that's going to be really interesting. And one of the conversations I frankly have both with clients and with a lot of colleagues is, you know, it, it, how can you really use models because so many of the models have sort of been, been built either in this period of, of sort of an accommodative fed or at least a sort of a laissez fear fed, um, not a, a Federal Reserve that is obviously moving counter-cyclically uh, to sort of the macro environment. So it'll be very interesting to see sort of how it plays out and and sort of what it means for, for pricing of assets. Uh, you know, maybe one place that's somewhat immune to a certain degree, I suppose, is is uh, the land of bankruptcy. So let's go ahead and bring in Nagisa now. And Nagisa, I know one thing you've been paying special attention to is is sort of the the fun and frivolity that is this Citibank Revlon dynamic. So maybe give us a you know maybe a little bit of background and update in terms of where we are with that. Sure. Thanks, Noel. So Citibank's potential subrogation claim may end up becoming a focal point in the case. Um, the question sort of stems from starting about two years ago when uh, from Citibank's mistaken $900 million payment to Revlon term lenders that covered uh, the entire outstanding uh, principal and interest amounts. Um, Citi was the admin agent. Uh, I think its job was to transfer just about uh, $7 million to lenders. Uh, and instead, it ended up transferring $900 million by mistake. Um, and the debt total amount wasn't actually due until uh, 2023. Uh, long story short, $500 million was never was not returned. City sued. It lost in, uh, in this record. Um, the money, to just briefly go over um, that lawsuit, uh, the money was kept pursuing what's called this uh, discharge for value doctrine. Uh, basically, uh, the defense applies when someone receives a payment that is in fact owned to them, like it was the case of the lenders in this case. And uh, the recipients of so the lenders can uh, keep this mistaken payment uh, so long as it's, it's they didn't fraudulently induce the payment uh, and did not realize at the time that uh, the money was sent by mistake. Obviously, there was no question that the lenders didn't induce the payment. There was no question that they were um, that they were owed the payment. Um, so uh, the only uh, the key question in the federal, in federal court was whether Citibank made a mistake when it sent the payment, and um, the uh, whether the lenders realized that Citibank made a mistake when it sent the payment. And the court cited the lenders that they 
it wasn't reasonable for them to assume the Citibank uh, made a mistake. It was most reasonable for them to um, assume that Revlon actually meant to submit the payment. Um, so fast forward two years, Revlon is now in bankruptcy. And one of the key questions in the case um, will be whether City does in fact has a claim. And if it does have a claim, how the claim could be treated. Uh, the base, the best case scenario for City would be to have this purpose of claim with those term lenders who actually return the payment. And um, the thing that the sort of thing that comes to mind in terms of how you structure this claim is is, is subrogation, uh, which is whether it's under the bankruptcy code or under state law, that generally arises when a party that is liable with the debtor or secures a claim uh, of a creditor against the debtor pays such claim and then just steps right into the shoes of, of such creditors. So the, in other words, this would allow today to step into the shoes of uh, the lenders who kept the mistaken payment and assume all of their rights. Um, there are some issues with that uh, proposal, however, uh, that may end up uh, playing out in bankruptcy court if it gets to that, um, which is first is this issue of what constitutes a co-debtor or a co-obligor, terms that you generally use in bankruptcy um, but they don't, they're not necessarily defined, but uh, generally they're reserved for entities like guarantors or sureties. And um, the fact that Citibank is not actually obligated, was not, was never obligated to pay Revlon's claim, uh, raises concern as to, as to whether it could ever be considered uh, an entity sort of collateral with the debtor or a co-obligor in the case. Um, Another issue that um, that could come up is um, is uh, the codification of subrogation claims in bankruptcy code is section 509 of the code, uh, but generally that applies to post bankruptcy payments, uh, which this is not one. Obviously, you have uh, state law subrogation claims that so could come as that, but that's another issue that that could come up in this case. Um, and then finally, and I presume that city is sort of on parallel paths, sort of also trying to, are they still trying to reclaim the monies? I know that was yeah, something yeah. they tried that, and lost at, but I assume they're still working at that. Absolutely. So I was going to touch on, the, touch on the end, but yes, procedurally, the case is not over, which sort of complicates um, the situation for Avalon because it's sort of left with no counterparty to negotiate because it doesn't know who owns the majority of the of the term loan debt. Yes, the case is actually uh, in uh, at the Second Circuit now. Now I think oral arguments have been I think took place about nine or so months ago, which is a long time to not get decision. But uh, what's interesting about that is that uh, if you listen to the oral argument, there seems to there seems to have been a good chance that the Second Circuit may actually certify the case or some questions to the New York to the New York State Court of Appeals, which is New York's highest state court. Um, that usually happens when a federal court thinks that there are sort of unresolved issues of state law, that the law isn't clear or undeveloped. If that actually happens, uh, this could prolong the case even more. Um, so it, it could be. Obviously, it's been. It's been. And would that have? Like, let's just say, like something like that happens. I don't mm -hmm. know what the probabilities are. Does that, you know, complicate or throw a different wrench into the the Revlon case? Would they be able to separate that out and still proceed with everything else they're trying to achieve in Revlon? I think. I think that sort of when they filed the case, they've started making very very small steps. Uh, with the city claim, the first thing they did is to sort of note, to ask the court to verify, for example, that um, the automatic state doesn't apply to city's claim. So they, they're everybody sort of being very careful as to how to approach it. So I think that it, it does affect the case insofar as there's not a clear counterparty to, to negotiate. So that's a problem, um, but it's sort of, it, the case has been on pause for a while and uh, parties have been careful to not 
take sort of a strong stand uh, as to um, the ultimate owner of the claim. Another thing that will ultimately play out is this sort of relation between subordination rights uh, and, and subrogation. Subrogation claims are generally subordinated to the claims of a creditor uh, for the underlying obligation. Um, so until the claim is paid in full, so city also sort of runs risk at the end of the day, even if it manages to secure a subrogation claim, that uh, that claim could be uh, subordinated uh, to the claims until all of the uh, until the claims of the lenders who actually return the payments to city are paid in full, which obviously would not be a good thing for city. So another thing I guess that, that you could see played out, which you hear sometimes maybe is sort of instead of treating it as subrogation issue to treat uh, city's mistake as a purchase and sale transaction, for example. So just assume they, they, pay, they purchase these notes, uh, obviously at a very, very high, unreasonable premium. Um, but obviously there, there's, there's holes in that too. There was no paperwork, obviously. Nobody sort of pursued the regular route of actually purchasing loans. But, um, so, so maybe bring in Phil here, because Phil, I think, you know, part of the Revlon thing, if I'm not mistaken, is you, I mean, I guess with most bankruptcies, frankly, is you want to move kind of quickly, right, before too much value bleeds out of the enterprise and that sort of thing. Sounds like, you know, the city stuff certainly <laughs> puts a, a proverbial wrench into into the works there, unless they're able to maybe thin that out. But but from your standpoint, in terms of from sort of the, the more recovery and, and and sort of exit piece of it, um, you know, what do you, what do you see? What are you hearing? How does it sort of interplay with, with what Nagisa is speaking to with some of this uh, city litigation? Sure. Yeah, no, it, it's, it, it's going to be an interesting one for sure. Uh, you know, Revlon filed because trade started running on it, cash terms, and it was a liquidity crisis. They didn't really plan on filing. They, they actually operations were turning around. And so now that it finds itself in bankruptcy, now that it finds itself in bankruptcy, and you know they have a dip that's allowing it to you know operate more along the industry's rate of filling orders at ninety percent as opposed to where they were, which was like seventy percent. Um, now you start thinking, okay, how are we going to get out of bankruptcy? And what where I am at, and you know, look, Revlon's going to take its course, but I I, I think. This might make sense as a as a as a path is that you would pursue pursue a standalone reorganization where Revlon develops its business plan, it determines debt capacity, and then it communicates to each of its you know creditor constituencies. Um, and then so so that's one fork. And then on a second fork, they can do a comprehensive marketing of the assets. Um, you know, this is a company that's hasn't traded out of uh, out of uh, um, Ron Perlman's hands for uh, 37 years. So, and, you know, clearly has some uh, iconic, <laughs> at risk of using that word again, um, brands here. So the, so with this kind of strategy, the last people that you really want to have a serious discussion with is probably the people who you don't even know who hold the loans, the 2016 term loans. So, you know, to, to your original question, which was like, how does that cha change the reorganization is, you know that that's all got to be figured out down the road. So maybe what paths can you take so that you can get some work done without necessarily knowing who those owners are? And, you know, one of the things I point out is if a marketing exercise here works out remarkably well, where, you know, someone comes in with a bid that, you know, and the the multiples in this industry, there's other players trading at 15 to 20 times. All of the debt here was about 12 times what the trailing 12-month EBITDA was. So, well, that was before the dip. It, it moved up a little bit. But, yeah, but I'm assuming your your 15 times is probably like your, your upmarket Elizabeth Arden. Absolutely. Times, right? Well, yeah. Elizabeth Arden is, belongs in Revlon, but, you know, I mean, your S.K. Lauder and L'Oreal. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's what I meant. <laughs> yes. And, and so... They all get mixed up in my mind since <laughs> I don't really shop that counter, so... And, and, and another way that you can... While you're going to communicate to each of your constituencies and tell them, you know, maybe the the road that they need to take in order to, you know, take care of, to, to get the company out of bankruptcy, the easiest path is really 
through the Branco lenders. Um, because once you calculate what debt capacity is here, it's probably not much more. If, 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 I think it probably will stop at the first lien Branco lenders. And so the second lien Branco is probably looking to be the fulcrum instrument. And that's a group that you can actually work with because you know who they are. <laughs> Which usually is not like, that's a really low bar. It's like knowing who your creditors are, but that's one that you know can't be taken for granted here. Um, so anyway, that I, I, I see that as like, you know, a two-prong approach that, and even just working with, um, you know, on a standalone plan with those second lien Branco lenders that could drive uh, the, maybe drive solutions for all the other open-ended questions that we have, especially regarding the 2016 term loans. I, right, I so think... Maybe, oh, go ahead. You're, no, you're I, I said, I just ultimately, you know, while they may try and have valuation fights, you know, with junior creditors, the, the, you know, what any good restructuring lawyer will tell these junior creditors is like, bring a big checkbook. Because, you know, if you really want to, like, have a valuation fine and you really want to try and do this, um, it's going to cost a lot of money. And, uh, yeah, a lot of questions still need to be answered here. And, you know, in the meantime, the first lien Branco lenders are making over 16.5% in adequate protection payments. So they don't mind waiting. All right. Good work if you can get it. So uh, maybe just to wrap on Revlon Nagisa, any thoughts in terms of, like, what we're looking at in terms of timeline in the courts here? Where we go to next? Um, so it will. How the Second Circuit deals with this good claim is going to be is going to play a significant role in the case. They could come with a decision yes or no, uh, and that could bring some clarity. But as I said, if they actually push at least certain questions to New York State Court, then it could potentially be very prolonged. So let's maybe uh, maybe shift uh, shift focus here and turn to TPC, which is another name uh, I know you've been focused on, Nagisa. So what's our uh, latest there? It's very exciting for me that we have more than one bankruptcy to talk about. I guess I gotta say it is, and the adversary proceeding uh, in TPC uh, that was argued last week has been very interesting. Uh, that was initiated by servers and Bayside, who were seeking a, who were seeking a ruling that uh, that. 10.5% of notes that were issued in 2019 are senior to the 205 million in principal amount uh, of 10.875% of notes that the company issued um, in uh, 2021 and 2022 following uh, an explosion and a series of business and liquidity setbacks that ultimately uh, led the company to bankruptcy. It, uh, it's interesting because it obviously it affects recoveries and and um, uh, but but also the overall dip structure. Uh, the proposed dip allowed for roll up of the 2021 and 2022 issuances, and um, if this uh, new notes the the new issuances end up being senior, then there would be oversecured and using post-petition loans to repay them wouldn't harm the estate, so the roll-up wouldn't be an issue. If the opposite was true, if, there, if uh, the 2019 issuance is senior, then uh, the, that puts the entire dip into question. Um, the, uh, when the new insurances um, were, the new notes were issued, uh, in 21 and 22, over a super majority, over two thirds approved the new insurances, and um, uh, the key, the case itself, the proceeding is very procedurally complicated. I'm not gonna touch on all the details, but uh, the court focused on this uh, almost exclusively on the consent question. Uh, Servers and base sides maintain that. Uh, the uh, new issuances had to be done with the, with the unanimous consent of all uh, note holders under the 10.5% notes. And um, the argument was based on this concept of sacred rights provision in the indenture that basically dealt with changes to the application of proceeds, which in itself requires uh, the consent of each note holder. Um, so there was a lot of discussion during oral argument and also in briefing as to what 
does this provision mean with uh, TPC and those not holders that are supporting TPC and supporting the DIP and supporting the new insurances, maintaining that the application of proceeds provision applies only to sort of alteration of payments of proceeds between ABL facility and the 10.5 note holders or among note holders as to each other, but didn't really involve any, sub any subordination rights. Um, while, uh, so there's this, what, what I think will probably the determining factor in the case, and we can get decision as early as today, probably this week, most likely, uh, that there's a And just for solution. note to people, it's uh, July 6th, just in case, you're listening to, <laughs> in case you're listening to this on the 11th or something. So when she says today, July 6th is that day. Thanks, Noel. Um, there's a separate, there was a, there's a separate provision in this 10.5 indenture that uh, provides that with the consent of at least two thirds, you could actually eliminate the collateral entirely. And the court was um, sort of focused on this, on this provision and, um, and asked and, and asked how basically you can make sense of this contractual provision that allows total release of collateral with two thirds vote, uh, while uh, Cerberus and Bayside maintain that subordination requires unanimous consent where release of collateral is arguably sort of a more extreme measure than subordination. Um, so I think that, uh, I, I, I think probably if I have to guess where the court is going to come out is that it, this idea that if you could release a lien, which is a more draconian action um, with two thirds consent, then how can you need unanimous consent for subordination? Uh, there were there are sort of key cases that could help here, like Trimark, but that case did not necessarily have the language we're dealing here with um, with a two thirds consent for a release of the lead, the release of all liens. Um, so, so antennas are up on this one. It sounds like uh, <laughs> with maybe some sort of immediate uh, new information that comes. So, uh, being mindful of time here and just uh, sort of moving into closing thoughts. So, we got Revlon in, we got TPC in. What do you, uh, what Gisa, are you sort of looking at, or are there things sort of on your radar moving forward? I know, you know, sort of for me. Uh, you know, while I don't uh, play distinctly in, in sort of that landscape, I mean, the, the Bed Bath & Beyond earnings announcement and some of the liquidity challenges they've got there certainly has them on my radar uh, in terms of potential problem children. But what are, you, uh, what are you seeing in your landscape? What are you looking out for? Based on a hearing today, actually July 6th, it appears <laughs> July 26th may be what the cold call called a turning point in Johnson Johnson's bankruptcy where the court may decide the path forward in terms of uh, estimation proceeding and possibility of allowing some cases to proceed, though that may be unlikely. All right. How about you, Phil? What's uh, what's uh, got you sort of eyes wide open? Endo, uh, that's in the grace period right now. They stopped paying their unsecured notes a coupon. You know, the, the pricing of those unsecured notes below 10 cents on the dollar kind of indicated <laughs> that was in the cards. <laughs> But, um, well, and that's sort of a sector that we know reasonably well because, uh, you know, and I know, Nick, you say you spent some time with Mel and Grant and we've seen a fair amount of that. So anything other than Endo? Yeah, and and the other one is there's a big long coupon July 15th for Accela and uh, they've been having issues with liquidity. Um, you know, just it, it's been tight. It, it's uh, they, They've been meeting all their obligations to date, but um, at, at least as I'm aware, but... Um, that's that's a big coupon for a company that's struggling with liquidity. Right. And looking at the market environment, maybe kind of lowers your enthusiasm to try and just chip along. All right. Last word goes to you, Eliza. What do you got for us? Well, this week in particular, and I'm sure for a little bit, I'm really can't help but look at the train wreck of crypto distress. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Bruce talked about it a little bit. It's, in some regards, not that interesting <clears throat> from a, you know, sector analysis point of view, but I can't help but wonder how, how bad it'll get, how much contagion there is, and what some of the restructurings will actually look like, given the kind of regulatory uncertainty. 
Right, and you do definitely have sort of related instruments, whether you're talking, you know, Coinbase or whatnot, uh, you know, or MicroStrategy, some of their paper isn't trading particularly well as the cryptos come off. So all good things to sort of keep an eye on. With that, uh, we appreciate everyone once again joining us uh, for the July edition of the State of Distress Debt podcast, and we look forward to uh, regaling you once again in the month ahead. Take care.